It's time to lead the people. The show for aspiring leaders at every level. If you want to boost your self-confidence, get noticed, and maximize your impact by leading others, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Matt Pepsel. Ready to lead? Follow me. today's show started with quote to self the segment where i share some of my favorite quotes about leadership and how i interpret them here's today's quote a leader is a dealer in hope napoleon bonaparte man i love this quote not just because the french military leader is my second favorite napoleon right after mr dynamite of course but because it's simple yet powerful let's break it down first of all this quote to me offers a definition or a characterization if you will of a leader It answers the question many of us have. What is a leader exactly? So according to Napoleon, a leader is a dealer. I like that term, dealer. It's like all about influencing or or selling even, but not like a used car dealer or an arms dealer. Uh, But for me, there's no shame in selling. We're selling ideas. We're selling our position. We're selling people on change sometimes. So I like to think of this more like a fine art dealer or someone who deals in precious gems. But for Napoleon here, we're talking about a dealer in hope. So what is hope really? Hope in the classic sense is defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Now, obviously, that sort of thing to happen is some sort of positive future state for most of us. Now, I actually studied hope in my doctoral work. I did research on the level of hopefulness and the impact of coaching on that. And what I found is that hope has two primary components. The first is called agency. So this is when we perceive ourselves as being able to produce an effect. If I don't feel like I have any control over the situation, it's hard for me to have hope. But the second is called pathways. These are the means by which you can manifest that effect that you want to have. If you can't see a way forward to get to where you want, you're not going to have hope then either. All right, let's bring it all together. There are three pillars in my leadership framework. I call these self-mastery, inspiring others, and delivering results. When Napoleon says that a leader is a dealer in hope, he captured all three. Sucker bleu. Leader. This is the self as the actor, the protagonist. Dealer, this is inspiring others through influence. And hope, hope is all about empowering others, seeing possibilities, and delivering that positive future result. So there you have it. Even if your leadership goal doesn't involve dominating most of continental Europe, we can still thank Napoleon for his helpful quote. Merci beaucoup, Napoleon. We salute you. Executive functioning does exactly what it sounds like. It is in charge of rational decision-making. It's in charge of self-control. It's in charge of contemplating, thinking, strategizing. That was Dr. Joanna Massey. Joanna has more than 25 years of experience in the media industry at companies including Condé Nast, Lionsgate, CBS, and Hasbro. She holds four graduate degrees, including an MBA and a PhD in psychology. She's also written two books, including Communicating During a Crisis, influencing others when the stakes are high. In our conversation, Joanna and I discuss how leaders can facilitate change through self-awareness and communication style. Let's listen in. Well, thanks, Joanna, for making the time and chatting with us today. Today, Joanna and I are going to be talking all about change and communication. So, Joanna, as you know, everybody knows we've experienced this tremendous change over the last 15 plus months, and change seems to be the new constant, right? So one thing I was hoping we could get started today is just walk me through a little bit. What's behind this change experience that I have as an individual when faced with change? Change is interesting because it's the one guarantee in life, in my opinion. Um, And because 
things are always changing. So the one guarantee in life is change, and yet human beings are hardwired to resist change. We gravitate biologically, neuroscience, it's, it's brain science. We gravitate to that which is comfortable and familiar and similar to us. And we reject that which is different um, and makes us uncomfortable. And so as a result, some people, when change come, are very, very resistant. Other people have trained themselves to accept change, but within reason. So I consider myself a change agent in business. I am always looking for what's happening, what's different, how do we hit that new frontier, and let's hop on that train in the front, not in the, uh, in the back. But having said that, if you say something to me like, the hairdresser you've been going to for years is retiring, <laughs> you know, or um, they no longer serve your favorite dessert at your favorite restaurant. Or that is immediately like, what? No, I no, you know, why can't any, why can't some things just say the same? You, you know, that dialogue that we have. So I've trained myself to accept change in some areas, but there are other areas of my life where I don't like change at all. And that is very indicative of neuroscience and human biology. It's, it's, it goes back to our amygdala, which basically runs the show uh, silently in the background. I find that encouraging and, and fascinating. I, I, I do have a brain. I occasionally use it, but I think it helps to know that sometimes what's going on is a natural byproduct of exactly what you said, how we're hardwired. And, and so uh, sometimes I know as a perspective as leaders, as we look at some people, we get frustrated when they can't change. Why can't they just, you know, kind of respond? We have to make this change. You say, well, it actually comes down to the biological foundation of behavior. That's very true. And I'll tell you when I was a, I, when I was a younger executive and I was really fortunate to have um, positions, leadership positions starting at a, a young age, at around age 28 is when I was, when I first reported into a CEO directly wow. as a head of PR and marketing. So it started young for me, but at that age, I didn't have the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience to understand when, why people would push back. And as somebody who was constantly looking to try to do new things, I would frequently in corporate America get met with no we're not going to do that. And if I would say, why not? They'd say things like, because we've never done it that way, because the way we do it and have been doing it works just fine. Mm -hmm. That was that resistance to change. And I think as a younger executive, if I had understood that I was hitting the amygdala at that point, and I knew how to navigate that better with words and communications, I would have done better because what would happen is I get frustrated. I think the person was being a, you know, um, gatekeeper, or giving me a roadblock and I'd go over their head and then that would cause friction and pushback and problems. And it doesn't have to be that way if you understand what you're meeting and how to negotiate it. It's amazing how much we know about brain science now and how much we know about people inside organizations, but it doesn't stop the fact that change is still really difficult for organizations and for people. So now as a more uh, experienced leader, as you pointed out, and you, you know uh, what you know and haven't gone through the cycles, what are some tips that you might have for leaders who have to help their, their, their teams navigate a big organizational change? Big organizational changes are definitely challenging because you're real. It's not just you're working. You're not just working within your own personal family system or with your friends or maybe even your own department. Like you are talking about in some cases, a massive organization, you have to get a lot of people on board. I write 
one of my books is called Communicating During a Crisis. Mm -hmm. And it was written at the beginning of the pandemic. And I write about a concept um, that's taught in business schools, MBA programs and whatnot. And I cannot, I cannot claim this as my own. It's not mine. There is uh, this organization in the US called the Neuroscience Leadership Institute. They coined a term called neuroleadership. They basically teach neuroscience to leaders. It's, it's quite brilliant, I think. And essentially what they say is human beings have a very predictable response to change. And what's even more predictable is the type of change that will, that will trigger them. And they created an acronym for it, and I will go through it very quickly, but the acronym is SCARF. And in the book, the, the subhead for this section is SCARF is not a fashion statement. And what SCARF means is that when somebody's, the A, for example, when somebody's autonomy at work is, is taken away, guaranteed they're going to start to behave, I'm going to say badly with quote, air quotes, but they're just going to start to behave in a way that is puts up roadblocks. If their certainty, which is the C in SCARF, gets taken away, like, I don't know if I'm still going to have a job. I don't know who I'm reporting to. I don't know what my role is going to be. That is a guarantee of, you know, different possibly challenging behavior. Fairness is a big one. And we see that in social issues and, uh, of, you know, across the board. And, you know, when you apply fairness in work, but also in society, you really see how people who now have a voice, thanks to social media, will push back on fairness. And in fact, I recently launched a new company. It's a benefit corporation called the Marketing Communications Think Tank. And our global purpose is to shift the way we communicate around politicized social issues. So think racism, think you know, gun, gun use in the United States, think the environment. And how do you have a dialogue, a constructive conversation instead of a contentious debate? Makes total sense. And I think that's a change that has caught a lot of organizations and certainly a lot of leaders off guard is twofold. One is the access people have to express themselves and, and they're also interested in doing so. And I think a lot of times we see that there's a lot of change and it's hard to know the right, the right way to handle all of that. And again, back to that biological basis of, of change and how we respond to it, it's, it's really important to, to keep that in mind. You know what I love most about this show, Joanna? It's like you got a bald host, but we're talking about hairdressers and scarves and we're just covering all the bases. This is perfect. And of course, and what your and what your listeners can't see, which is my snoring pug in my lap, and I'm hoping that they also cannot hear that. No, I think we're all good. I think that you know, as you said, the the types of people who are on your team, and maybe trying to understand, like in your scarf analogy, where change is going to impact autonomy, for example, certain types of people to whom that's really important might be affected more. But in my experience as a leader, some of my team members really need that role clarity. And now all of a sudden, if a change affects that, that's going to that's the part of the SCAR framework that's really going to start to disrupt them the most. So maybe knowing a little bit about our people and sort of preparing ourselves for how the change might be interpreted differently and experienced differently by my individual team members. Is that something that is is possible for leaders to do? Possible, but challenging. And I'll tell mm. you why. Um, if you know somebody really well and you've worked with them for a long time, yes, you can absolutely see those patterns. But our human reaction to change has to do with everything that's ever happened to us in our entire lifetime. And that means that while we have 
certain predictable reactions, which are anger, um, fear, uh, sadness, the, the things that trigger it and the reasons why are as diverse as the 8 billion people in the world. Gotcha. So, so it's very challenging for a company of any size, but especially larger companies for us to really predict what will happen. You can kind of do an overall view, but to give you an example, um, the amygdala, it's, it's like, I call, I, I, I give it a little personality. I call it a him. I don't know why, maybe that's sexist and I shouldn't, but anyway, I'm, you know, I say that the amygdala is like a ferocious watchdog and his job is to protect the body. Its job is to keep the body safe. And he is really good at his job. But the minute, you know, the, the minute the central nervous system says I'm stressed, I'm, 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 I have fear, I, I'm terrified, I'm stressed, I, whatever it is. The minute that signal goes up, the amygdala says, no problem, I'm on it. It's my job to protect you and to calm you down and I'm gonna do it. And the way it does that is by doing two things. The first thing it does is shuts down the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex called executive functioning. Mm. Guess what executive functioning does? Executive functioning does exactly what it sounds like. It is in charge of rational decision-making. It's in charge of self-control. It's in charge of contemplating, thinking, strategizing. What an executive would do. The amygdala shuts it down. Why? Because when when the body, when the organism is under stress and in a problem, you can't have the front part of the brain saying, let's think about this. Let's be rational. Like, no, if there's, if you're in trouble and there's a tiger behind the tree, which by the way, went is when the system was developed, there's a tiger behind that tree. I don't have time to think like, huh, was he clearing his throat or is he going to come after me? And should I run? And which direction should I run in? You would be tiger dinner before mm. that happened. So the amygdala shuts down the, the executive and basically says, I've got this. And the amygdala will have you, to use the tiger example, will have you running before the rational conscious mind even realizes that it heard a tiger growl. Gotcha. That's how powerful the amygdala is. But to finish that, the second thing the amygdala does is it searches the computer, which is the brain, mm-hmm. for everything that's ever happened to you in your life. And that goes back to when you were in utero. This is how far back, because that's when it started to get developed. And so it'll search for everything that's ever happened and it will find the thing that calms you down. Okay. Now, for some people, that thing might be a little self-destructive. For some people, that thing is alcohol or drugs or there's eating, compulsive gambling, things that we know of as addictive. Um, For other people, that thing that, that makes them feel better is anger. Um, You know, some, for some it's vegetating on the couch and watching TV. Like, that reaction is completely unpredictable. Um, And the thing about it is that when we are in what's called an amygdala hijack, which is basically when the amygdala is in charge, it is incumbent on the company, on the leader, on the manager, on the boss to dialogue with employees in a way that is going to get them out of the fear place where the amygdala is running the show and back into the rational mind so that they can, they can look at it more rationally and not from fear and stress and upset. 
Wow. Let's come back to the to the how to do that, to how to have that dialogue in just a second. But I wanted to make a, another connection, which is that what I'm hearing you say is that even if I have some experience working with a person and maybe we've been through a couple different types of organizational changes, that doesn't necessarily mean that if another type of change comes in, it's going to be interpreted the same way and, and comfortable for them and fast for them. It may trigger something from their life history in a way that I hadn't seen before. So it's always important to check in. Okay. All right. Absolutely. I'm nodding as if we're on video. Yes, you're absolutely right. Wow. So, okay. So let's say that I'm the leader now we're going through change and it's, it's inevitable and I need to help guide my team through this change. And I'm going to have the type of dialogue that you were, you were describing just now. What are some ways that I can approach having the conversation with the team? I need to be frank with them because we're going through this change. It's important change, but I know that they're in a fear state. What are some things you'd have me do as the, as the team leader in this case to try to not make things worse, certainly, before I make them better? A couple of different things. I'll start with, we have a tendency as human beings, because we've been taught this for a very long time now, um, there was a philosophy, that a psychological theory that goes back to the 1950s, that I statements are helpful. I can see that you look stressed, or I've been in your shoes, and I can imagine what you're experiencing right now. That is actually not helpful, it turns out. There has been research done that that is not helpful. There is a way of negotiating now that is gaining popularity that's called affect labeling. And with affect labeling, which I got to be honest, I find it very challenging to do. But with affect labeling, what you do is you say to that person, you're scared. And if you don't want to use the word scared, because I mean, frankly, a lot of people would push back on that. You know, you're anxious about this change right? You just want to label it because what happens to the brain in that moment, believe it or not, is yeah, I'm anxious, but it, it, it calms down, right? Which is remember, that's what you're trying to do, trying to calm down the system. So the amygdala goes, lets the executive come back online. That's really all we're trying to do is diffuse it. Now that's not that strategy, that way of doing things is not for everybody. And it's, it's challenging for me. And I have a PhD in psychology and 30 years in business. So <laughs> I am the first to say like, don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah. You, you might want to, there's actually a couple of people who teach it. I highly recommend them. But what I would say is you want to be conscious of your own stress because it's very important that you as the leader stay calm and not get into an amygdala hijack. You want to keep yourself calm because it's really important that you're not coming from that defensive, angry, possibly fearful place yourself, because you want to keep your own executive online. You want to be able to access rational decision-making and strategic thinking in order to help your employee do it. The second thing you want to do, and I recommend this, I talk about this in my book, again, communicating during a crisis, but one of the things is that in order to influence people, They need to believe you, they need to trust you, and they need to respect you. So let's assume that as a boss, you've got the trust and respect already. That means that you're really focusing on believability in this moment. And so you want to make sure to talk with your employees regularly, to have communications that that are timely, transparent, and truthful, Okay, I just, I like to put things in ways, I do this in the in my books, I put things in ways that are kind of easily remembered, especially in threes. I need it, I like it. 
you want the communications, the tone to be calm, confident, but also compassionate, right? So you really, and you want to recognize that what we've learned from social media, especially Twitter, is when you lob something, a criticism, a defense, a strong point perspective across the Twitter fence, what's coming back at you, you know, is more anger, right? So that, you know, anger begets more anger. It, it doesn't go anywhere, you know, telling people, well, this is the way it is and you just got to put up with it, you know, or, or go with the flow or get out. It, none of that stuff works if you, if you value your workforce, and you want to keep them. Right. So that whether you are the head of a department, the head of a division, or the head of the company, and in the, in the case of the head of the company, there are a lot of things you can do like town halls, um, ask me anything sessions on Slack or Teams, uh, you know, Yammer, whatever system you're using. Uh, things like this where you are accessible and talking to them regularly. And I fully know, as somebody who has worked at publicly held companies for the majority of my career, there are times when you cannot speak. I mean, there are laws against what you're allowed to say and not say sometimes, especially if you're in the middle of an M&A tra transaction or in a quiet period and there's rumors flying, all this kind of stuff. I, I know that. But any good leader, any good CEO can still get in front of their employees. It's really the act of, again, transparent, truthful, timely. In doing it calmly, compassionately, and with confidence. I'm hearing that change is a very human endeavor with a very deep biological root. It's it's really amazing. And they don't teach you this They're stuff inseparable. in business school. They don't teach you how to do these things. You go and you you get your, you know, you're you're a first-time manager. You've got people who are looking to you. They're frustrated. You're getting nervous too. You're like, hey, don't you see the tiger right behind the tree? It's gonna eat us both if we don't get out of here. And all of a sudden you're making things worse and you don't mean to, but it's like, th these are great tips to help us understand that it's, it's okay when people feel the way they do, it's understood and expected and natural, but there are things you can do to use the techniques you shared about you know, being truthful and being timely, being transparent, these types of things, super important. And I'd also say you make a really good point there. I got my PhD in psychology before I got my MBA, which is a little, you know, I mean, those two degrees in and of themselves are unique, unusual, but to do it in that order is very different. And when I was in my executive MBA program, I was um, reminded of how many executives are really resistant to the idea of a more, um, I was gonna say touchy feeling, that's not right, but a more compassionate and um, open way of dealing with employees and colleagues. Mm. And it's so important because today, millennials and Gen Z demand it. Uh, I really have enjoyed today's conversation, Joanna. Me too, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. I love your podcast. Awesome. Well, before I let you go, how can my listeners follow up with you and learn more about you? Oh, that would be terrific. Very easily. JoannaMassey.com is my website. All right. Here are my top three takeaways from today's show. One, our brains are wired to detect threats in our environment, whether those threats are real or imagined. Two, when your brain switches into threat mode, it begins to shut down executive functioning. That's the part of the brain responsible for rational decision-making and strategic thinking. 
Three, during times of change, you may get better results as a leader if you can understand what's naturally happening inside the brains of those affected by the change. Be empathetic and avoid making change more difficult by pushing your followers too hard or moving too quickly. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for making this investment in your leadership ability, and thanks for sharing this podcast with another aspiring leader who needs to hear it. All right, leaders, until next time, don't just manage the business when you can lead the people. Hold on one second. My dog picked a hell of a time to get a little antsy. Well, that's good. I like dogs.